Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. Now before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, earth-grown, evidence-based nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and interflow quickly is Genius Mode. Now, it took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up and the focus and the drive and the motivation and the mental clarity lasts me all day. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any other subscription discounts that you get on the BrainFirst website. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy, my friends. In this episode, Akshay Nanavati joins the show. Uh, Akshay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, my friend. Pleasure to be here. Uh, great to see you again. So um, you have written this book, Fiavana. For those of you listening that are not familiar with this book, uh, it is Fiavana, called Fiavana, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. It's a great book. You should definitely check it out. Uh, what's the story behind the concept Fiavana? Let's let's dive a little bit into uh, how did this all come about? Mm -hmm. You know, after after coming back from Iraq, uh, I was served in Iraq with the United States Marines as an infantry Marine. Had an intense role out there. One of my jobs was to walk in front of vehicles looking for bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines. To navigate a lot of fear in the, in that experience. I mean, even before joining, I had struggled with drug addiction lost two friends to that lifestyle, and thankfully got out of that. But joining the Marines was a pretty intense experience as well. I mean, it took me about a year and a half to get in because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. I also have scoliosis. I have flat feet. So I got all kinds of genetic flaws that I blame my parents on that, uh, <laughs> that I had to fight Thanks. my Thanks, way. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> had to fight my way into the Marines. But when I got back from Iraq, I was diagnosed with PTSD, struggled with depression, struggle with severe alcoholism. I've been at a point in my life that I would drink like a bottle a day, you know, full bottle of vodka a day and just drink till I pass out, wake up, drink till I pass out. And this would go on for days on end until my body could no longer take it. And one moment, at, like one after one of these sessions, I hit a moment where I woke up and was just about to walk over to the kitchen and pick up a knife and slit my own wrist. And that was kind of the lowest, you know, that was pretty rock bottom right there. And that moment triggered me that led to what is now Fearvana in that after that, I started researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, initially just to heal my own brain, but it led me down this sort of this much more meaningful path to figure out how do we all navigate the experience of human suffering? Because of course, I'm not the only one. Everybody suffers. We all struggle in some way. And that's what led me to the ethos of Fearvana and the idea that fear, suffering, stress, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, these are not enemies. These are not bad. They're not negative. They just are. 
and we can do something about them. We can turn them into something positive, into something beautiful. Hence, fear, vana, fear and nirvana, right? Two seemingly contradictory ideas that are actually very complementary and they work together as one. And not only can fear be turned into something beautiful, but I believe that it must be sought out. And it's actually in the seeking of fear that we find greater bliss and enlightenment. So that's kind of how it was birthed and, and then decided, you know, as I was navigating my own struggles, I uh, decided to then share, share the wisdom and share the learnings that I was gaining through, to others. So that's what led to the book. Mm. I think there's a, a common misconception in the, the self-help world that we have these moments, you know, uh, the, the light shines down on us and then within a few days or a few weeks, you know, our life is completely amazing and we've gone through this transformation yeah. and, and that sort of thing. You know, the overnight success, yeah. if you will. How long, like, and, and this is a lifelong journey, of course, but um, what I often find when I speak to people is that those first few moments, after that moment, there's, there's stages initially, like you might go through quite a big transformation to start with and then maybe another one and then perhaps over time it slows down a little bit and there's yeah. a, a small amount of progress as you get older and you, and you keep working on this. How long did it take and what sort of work did you put into from that moment to getting to what you felt was the first real uh, level of transformation for you? Mm-hmm. It, it was, I mean, like you said, it was definitely not one magical moment that shifted and everything. And I, I think that concept when they shared is very destructive. But for me, it was a slow climb out of the abyss. I mean, literally the week after I was on the, at that rock bottom of suicide, I dove back into the pit and drank again a week, right? And that's not that, I mean, that far. But when I saw so that moment was the start of the climb, but it was not like a, mm. I'm all good now, you know? <laughs> so I started, I, I, I had, as far as drinking, you know, I eventually I stopped and then I tried to moderate it for a bit and I was good moderating it, but my problem was little triggers would hit. And, um, and, you know, I finally discovered I'm not good at moderating anything, which is why now like I'm an ultra runner and I do pretty intense expeditions, just channel that addiction into healthy ways. So it was, it was a long time. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't off the top of my head. I don't know the specific timeline. And eventually, you know, I finally made a decision to go sober and then that lasted for a while, but even that didn't stay. I went through a very challenging divorce and I broke my sobriety, you know? And, uh, and when I break, I like ever, like everything I do, I do it pretty hard and pretty intense. And so I broke and, and, and so the climb is constant, you know, and I, I still wrestle with my demons today. I'm obviously in a much, much, much better place, but it wasn't that long ago that I broke my sobriety and, you know, granted now, other than that one break, things were getting much better in every way. You know, I was, um, mentally stronger, physically great, running ultra marathons, uh, really, really good in every business growing, just doing a lot of things were going great. Yes. Yes. I had a slip. Obviously I'm not defined by that one slip, but it's hard to say like, I mean, that moment when, when specifically I was on, on the brink, I think it was like 2013, 2014, if I remember correctly. And then Fearvana was out in 2017, 2018. So, uh, it's been, and it's, yeah, so I can't remember the specific timeline. Uh, I definitely don't remember the date when that first happened, that moment. But it's, it's been a constant climb is the point. Like it was just last year that I had broke my sobriety last, you know. So uh, this was after the book was out and everything. And I'm, I'm pretty open about it because I'm not perfect. <laughs> just because I wrote a book about it doesn't mean I'm like magically solved all my... And people have a hard time with that sometimes. It's like people when they hear I'm the Fearvana guy, that I'm, they often have this misconception that I'm fearless. Like... I'm suddenly just magically strong. And I've ha- literally had someone tell me that, that, 
oh, you wrote this book. You, you can't like have problems. And they, and yeah. it, it, was, it was absurd. <laughs> it was absurd. It was kind of a family member that told me that it was absolutely absurd. I'm like, yeah, that's not how it works. You know, I'm still a human being, but, um, yeah. So I guess it's a constant climb, you know, every day today, now there's new battles, but I'm in a much better place, of course, but there's new battles that I'm still wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, it's so funny that, that idea, like I'm, I'm always preaching brain health and, and, you know, talking about nutrition and all the little hacks that we can do and, and even the genetic um, based lifestyle changes and all these sorts of things like, right. Uh, and, and I'm a full nerd with this stuff yet. Like for all of our listeners who haven't seen this yet, yes, I occasionally get an entire meat lovers pizza and a couple of <laughs> pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Like <laughs> I'm a person. I like that stuff too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of people that will crucify me for it. But <laughs> it's like, come on, man. Like really? Yeah. Um, but I think one of the, the, and it takes constant work. All of this stuff takes constant oh. work. Constant, yeah. But you can't can't beat yourself up for it. Um, I, I have this little thing in the back of my mind saying, "Look, I I aim for like in terms of diet, and this is something that's fairly straightforward. I think everyone can relate to. I aim for about a ninety five percent adherence to the plan that I've set out, and I you know hover around that. Sometimes it'll be ninety nine, sometimes it'll be ninety four, maybe. Then I'm like, oh, okay, well maybe I should clean it up a little bit, and I'm cool with that." I'm not after yeah. 100% being, you know, whatever this this idea of perfect is in my life. Yeah, yeah, like it's yeah. it takes work. It's always yeah. I mean, I literally just like I think it was just this yesterday or this just this week I had some interesting revelations about my own uh, uh, navigation of how I pursue suffering to such a degree that I'm creating in all areas of my life. And I'm now seeking greater, like embracing comfort needs to a greater degree. And this was literally just few, like yesterday. So, you know, the, these insights are constant and you're constantly mm. figuring stuff out. And as you do, as you kind of rise above one demon, you transcend one struggle, a new one will show up. But that's not a bad thing, right? Like people often think that when I get there, the problems will magically end. <laughs> we all know whatever there and put anything yeah. under that there label. They don't, you know, you could have a hundred million dollars with the biggest house, biggest car. You will still have problems. I always like to say that progress is not the elimination of problems. Progress is the creation of new problems and approaching it that way allows you to say that problems are okay. Like you will have them <laughs> and it's yeah. the opportunity on the other side of them. That's valuable because you'll get a new awakening and then something else will show up and you'll get a new awakening on the other side of that. That's life. Mm. <laughs> and, and if you can, enjoy becoming a problem solver then you'll particularly exactly. like the, the the journey exactly then you then you fall in love with that the process yeah 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 what's your mission what's your mission here with fiavana my personal sort of mission is to inspire empower and train i have it very laid out but it's to inspire empower and train our human family to transcend suffering in order to live a life of boundless bliss mm. that's kind of how i define my personal mission statement which is essentially the fiavana mission statement you know, uh, is to transcend our suffering. And it's really the most important skill, right? Because if you can, it's, it's easy to handle life when life is good. We all know that it's, it's easy, but if you can, ha if you can handle suffering, then you'll be able to handle life. It's what you do in those times that will shape your destiny. So I always say that the most important skill in life, the most important skill is to develop a positive relationship to the experience of suffering, the experience of pain. And when you can do that, when you can, as I like to say, to suffer well, 
you can smile, whether life punches you in the face, whether you're facing a meaningful challenge, like running ultras, building a business, writing a book, whatever it may be, everything worthwhile pursuing is hard. But when you can suffer well, and it's not easy, like I, I preach it, but sometimes I forget my own advice. The other day I was just kind of rereading my own book in preparation for something I had to do. And I was like, you should follow your own advice, you idiot. You know? so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, I'm not perfect at it, but I'm certainly gotten pretty good at suffering these days, uh, suffering well and still work in progress. Yeah. I, I love that. And I love that you're um, really open about that as well. I, I do the same thing all the time. I'm like, uh, I, I catch myself doing something. I'm like, man, but I know all about this. I'm like, hang on a second. Hadn't I even written an article on this and like, and, and done an exhaustive literature review and, and a podcast episode. And I'm like, Oh, come on, man. <laughs> like, and, and, and I think more, if, if more of us were open, particularly in the self-help space, if more of us were open and honest about those things, I think we would, uh, that there'd be a much more positive, uh, message, things that people could take away and go, look, I'm not going to beat myself up over this thing. Yeah. Like even the quote unquote experts get it wrong too. So yeah. how, how can, let, let's, and some of the ideas that you've been talking about for a lot of people, I think will seem counterintuitive. So why, don't, so why don't we bring this down to a, a practical level? So mm -hmm. if someone is wanting to pursue a meaningful goal, uh, maybe they want to start a business or, or enter a, a relationship, maybe they've been dating someone for a while and they're considering mm -hmm. making it a serious relationship, but there's some fear around that. What, what are some of the steps that, that people can take? Got you. First off, don't judge the fear and, and label the fear, deem the fear bad. That's the fundamental and starting point is, is that. From there, we'll get to more practical tools, but I'll give you a kind of example of that. I was working with somebody once who loved her boyfriend, wanted to get married, and she knew she loved him, but she was really scared of marriage. And she, and she said, and she was labeling the fear as, and I quote, absurd. Why am I scared? What's wrong with me? As we dug deep, turns out her parents had a really horrible marriage. So inevitably, her brain, as from a child, from you know, from her childhood, had created a subconscious response that said marriage equals bad at a very basic level, of course. And so she had a fear around it, which was natural and normal. The problem was not the fear. The problem was, the challenge was, that she was labeling the fear absurd. And we all do that. We have an emotion and then we judge ourselves for having that emotion. Oh, I'm weak for feeling fear. I'm, I'm like, in, I'm something wrong with me because I'm feeling anxious, all that kind of stuff, right? So fundamentally stop labeling the emotion. Don't beat yourself up or feeling it. Just kind of notice it's there and accept it. Always, anytime fear shows up in any context, don't judge it. I don't like that term irrational fear either. I, the people say irrational fears all the time, right? I don't like that term because the subconscious is what creates a fear response. And the subconscious is no more rational than a liver or a, or a heart. It just is in response to the world. I call it in the, in the book, the animal brain. The human brain is our consciousness. That's the, that has the ability to possess rationality. The subconscious does not. So there are no irrational fears. They're just fears, accept it. And then, then what do you do? Once you notice this presence, start asking yourself, delve into the fears. Why am I scared? What am I scared of? What's the worst case scenario? How do I prepare for it? So like I said, in this example, this young, this woman was scared because her brain had developed a, uh, an equation that said marriage equals bad, you know? So now she's understanding it. Oh, okay. That's why it's there. Let me look at that. Is that, you know, is that something I want to follow through with? Is that something I really want to abide by? Let me understand it. Let me look at what's the worst case scenario of 
this is how a marriage could go bad. I mean, I was scared writing a book on fear. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was terrified. Like, is it going to be garbage? Are people going to give me a one-star review on Amazon? Are people going to hate the book, hate me, this, that, and the other thing? So I engaged it. How do I, how do I, because I was scared of writing a bad book, I studied how do you write a good book? I studied from great authors like Jack Canfield, you know, and to, to understand how to write a good book. So, the, so understanding the fear, delving into the fear, being clear on what is on the other side of the fear. So that's a huge reason why people get trapped in the fears because we're not really sure what's, what's the reward on the other side. Like what's the why, you know, and the why in terms of sort of a mindset level, but also the what, what is the tangible reward? You know, for me with Fearvana, it was obviously getting a book out there, building a, building a brand around, which has been hugely successful and amazing and I'm blessed, but more importantly, the impact it has. And, uh, and so getting clear on the why is really valuable. And then also tapping into the other side of the fear in terms of, okay, I have the fear of this thing, whether it be a relationship, a business, whatever it may be. What's the fear if I don't do this thing? So looking into the fear of consequences. Like for me, when I was writing my book, I would imagine, imagine myself dying, never having shared my message with the world. And when I say imagine myself, I'm not just talking about, oh, what if I die? Like going deep, you know, imagining myself on my deathbed, I literally have a poster on my wall that says you will die soon. So I'm constantly pondering intense. I'm not saying everybody should do that, but, uh, <laughs> but I've got, I've, I've, got like, I've got a calendar. I mark off the days <laughs> like yeah. in, an, until death day. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Right. So having that fear and Buddhism meditates on death. I actually think it's a tremendously valuable practice to do that, yeah. to have the fear of consequences. And then you ask yourself, you know, which fear do I really want to follow? I always like to say it's not about which passion do you want to follow, but which struggle are you willing to endure? Because whichever path you take, there will be a struggle. Pursue this relationship, don't. Build a business, stay in a corporate job. Uh, write a book, don't. There's always going to be a struggle, either path. The question is, which struggle are you willing to endure? Ask yourself that question and then choose. And then once you make that choice, commit to it. Then you visualize. Visualize, like visualizing is a great technique to visualize yourself moving through the fears finding out from people who have done what you want to do and understanding what they did. That's will help you move through the fear because action is ultimately, you know, action, action will help you transcend the fear and actually eliminate it in the temper temporarily because it will probably show back up, <laughs> but act temporarily it will eliminate it. So I, and I always like to say fear propels you to prepare. So remember that if you engage the fear, fear propels you to prepare. That's a great tool for preparation. I mean, that's why I wrote, I must have trashed 100,000 words worth of work to, to write the book that I wrote because of the fear. And I'm grateful for it because if I wasn't scared, I could have just put something out there. But because I was, I did the work and I put something that was better and hopefully now making an impact for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I think that can really help people with this, because a lot of this stuff, very abstract concepts and ideas uh, of course, when we dig into the psychology and the neuroscience and, and some of the various mechanisms that underpin our experience, it can often bring it to a concrete level. Mm -hmm. And by understanding more about what's going on in the machinery, mm -hmm. uh, we, we have less of an association with the sensation. So there's a dissociation of sorts because mm -hmm. now all of a sudden, like, it's not me, it's not part of my identity, it's actually just the uh the or organic neural machinery that's running me yeah uh, but also having an understanding of the mechanism i think uh can can down regulate that fear sensation too what are some of the uh, what i'm what i'm leading to here is what are, what are some of the things that you found when you dug into the neuroscience research when writing this book 
that helped you personally mm-hmm. in terms of your own fears by understanding what's going on in the machinery more? Yeah. The one of the biggest ones was how little control we actually have over our brain. A lot of neuroscience studies have shown that they can measure a person's brain and they'll be able to sort of register an action in in their subconscious brain before the person is consciously aware that they're taking the action. Essentially, like I call it the myth of free will, you know, that we we think we are in control. Like even if I pick up this glass of water, but neuroscientists have measured that that brain is kind of aware of that before you actually do it and before you're consciously doing it. So that was really a game changer for me because that translates to what I was saying earlier in terms of if fear shows up, it's okay, don't judge it, right? And I use this a lot with my post-traumatic stress because I came back from the war, I felt survivor's guilt. I was jumpy with loud noises. I did not like mm. crowds. Now, these were all things that people said, you, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. But it's not a disorder. That's a normal human response. My brain, my subconscious created a fear memory that loud noises equals death. So obviously, I was more vigilant. It's not a disorder. It's a normal human response to war. The amygdala, that kind of the fear center of the brain that creates the implicit memories, it had, it, it, that's where, you know, it, I also learned that the brain creates uh, emotional memories. It registers stronger into, the, in, into, our, into our implicit memories, right? So that helped me understand that these, these things were planted into my brain and there's nothing wrong with me. And that helped let go of the judgment. And then, then I learned about neuroplasticity. How do we rewire the brain? So understanding that, that, I mean, I don't have data to prove this because I don't have brain scans, but I can say with near 100% certainty that I've rewired my brain from where it was, right? So understanding how do we do that? You know, looking at Hebb's law, neurons that fire together, wire together. So we create associations of neurons that constantly fire together in everything we do. And our brain is constantly taking in, in information. They, like, they did an inst- in, in, uh, interesting study where they had somebody watch um, clips of Jennifer Aniston. And if the person was an avid watcher of the show Friends, their part of their brain would light up. But if they weren't, it wouldn't. So they called it sort of the Jennifer Aniston neuron. And they did this with <laughs> other things, sort of the Simpsons, if they watch Homer Simpson. Point being, though, what that teaches me is that the brain is taking in everything, whether you're aware of it or not. So you better be careful what you're putting into that brain. <laughs> and, and then how, how, do you, how do you reshape your brain? So there's a thing called the quantum Zeno effect that basically says the more attention you pay to something, the more that's, that's what allows Hebb's law to take, uh, take effect. So the more attention you pay to something, the more you give that ability for your brain to rewire. So that's how you change habits. That's how you change mental as well as physical habits. You consciously activate it, pay attention to it. And in time, over time, you can turn that conscious um, pattern into a subconscious pattern and then make it automated. So these were some tools among others as well that helped me start shifting my brain and building a better brain essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you've been talking to people and working with people, uh, what are some of the, the ideas that you introduce that they respond to really well, both uh, maybe maybe it's an insight when you talk about some of the mechanisms, or maybe it's yeah. a little technique, and they go, "Oh man, that thing just worked!" Like, what? What can you share some of your experiences sure, around sure. that? Yeah, there's. I think there's two maybe that uh, from what I look at, people who have sort of responded the the most uh, value to. One is something I call second dart syndrome. So just like I said, neuroscience has shown we don't control what happen, most of what happens in our brain. Spirituality says the same thing, and Buddha once said that we're stabbed by the two darts of suffering. So the first dart is the thing I don't control. Somebody comes in here in this room with a gun, I feel fear. I'm not choosing to feel fear. My brain responds. That's the first dart. The second dart is that judgment. 
You know, or I like to say sometimes the analogy I give is the first dart is when I stub my toe against a door. The second dart will be when I start saying things like this door is stupid, you know, bad things only happen to me, this house is stupid, and all this kind of stuff. And we do the same thing in response to our emotions. We feel anxiety, and I've worked with people who have, you name it, like one veteran I worked with who, who had severe anger issues after the war. And somebody wrongly told him, anger is just a choice, stop being angry. And he kept thinking, what's wrong with me if anger is just a choice? And I was like, stop, like ignore that. Right now, anger is just a pattern your brain has created. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So you have responded to any stimuli that sort of goes against how you want it to go. So little things would anger him. You know, he was, again, a veteran of the war. So I helped him pause, notice the emotion, and notice the second darts around it. Because the second darts were like, what's wrong with me? People tell me anger is just a choice. I'll never do this. I'll, you know, my kids won't be happy. And just that inner self-talk that we can all relate to. So noticing the second darts has been a really valuable tool. A lot of people told me that it's really helped, kind of allowing yourself to not go down that spiral of second dart syndrome. And that's kind of one tool. And the tool, the next tool is a tool to help you avoid going down that spiral. And this tool is five steps, L-M-N-O-P. So it's kind of easy to remember. L is label, label the emotion. So neuroscience has shown that when you label an emotion, it reduces activity in the emotional parts of your brain and increases activity in the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain related to focus and awareness. So essentially you're not becoming that emotion, you're creating a space between the emotion and how you wanna respond to it. So you're just labeling, I'm anxious, I'm angry, I'm scared, whatever it may be. Then language. If, if, especially if it's something like sadness, shift your body language, you know, that just helps some of the research around that has been disproven, but I do think just logically to me, it makes sense to shift, uh, you know, into a power pose or into a tall pose. Exactly. That will help. So language M is meaning. What is the meaning you have created to the situation that's led to the emotion? And what is the meaning you have created to the emotion? What is that second dart? So some people like I've worked with will have anxiety. He had anxiety. Every time he would write, he would be like, he would think of himself as pathetic for having anxiety for sitting on the computer. Again, that was the real problem. So what is the meaning? The N. This is kind of the key part, I think, is the N, where you're saying, it's not me, it's my brain. You're not, so you're not identifying with the emotion, which we all do. We become that. I've worked with people in mental health who will say, I have depression, I am depressed. And I'm like, no. Instead, reshift it to my brain goes through a state of depression from time to time but I am not me. I mean, I'm not my brain and my brain is not me. So you're saying it's not me. Then O is you opt for a new meaning. Even if you're not fully believing it yet, even if it's not deep in the subconscious, you're opting for a new meaning, new meaning to the circumstance and to the emotion. So I'm, I'm, I'm scared and anxious only because I care about my message. Suddenly now the anxiety is reframed. It's not bad. It's actually something good. It's a sign of my love for my message, right? So you're reframing the emotion and the event itself that's causing that. And then finally, P, purpose and preemptive strikes. So purpose is doing something small, even just something small, because you have to sort of build a better brain, right? Your brain's right now used to one thing. This particular guy I worked with, his brain said every time he sits on the computer, anxiety. So he had kind of created a pattern that said, computer, anxiety, TV. You know, he would stop, run away from the anxiety, go watch TV. So we have to do something differently going through the steps just to, to, to in, in line with that higher purpose. So initially, he would just sit and write to the computer for like two minutes. Even if you're just staring at the screen, two minutes, but that's doing something differently than five minutes and then 10 minutes, you know, so on and so forth. And the second part of the P is preemptive strikes, where you preemptively prepare for obstacles you know will show up. So if every time you know this will happen, you plan out in detail, write down, okay, at 5 p.m. I'm going to go to the computer and I'm going to sit down for two minutes and write. I'm going to go through the LMNOP tool, whatever it may be. And they've shown research that uh, elderly patients with 
hip and who was struggling with hip and knee replacement surgery who would do this, they would write down in detail how they would recover going through the pain. Like at 5 p.m., I'm going to take a shower. You know, I'll walk in the shower, my knee will hurt, and I'll, they'll kind of write down in detail. They recovered three times faster than those who did not plan it out in detail. So this helps you ultimately navigate the uh, obstacle and so you can transcend it and move forward. Those two tips have been pretty valuable from feedback I've heard. This, does this process apply to whether someone is experiencing uh, what they might feel as de- feel as debilitating fear versus anxiety versus maybe they're just a little apprehensive. Mm-hmm. Like, do you see it being applied to the whole sort of spectrum of sensation? I do. Uh, in my experience, I do think it can apply. I mean, if it's like, let's say debilitating fear or like, let's say it's a panic attack, sometimes it's something as simple as slow breathing, right, can help to at least, at least, at least calm it down. So just mm. take nice, slow breaths that physiologically that'll help because there's, you know, there's physiological things, there's psychological things and neural, there's different ways to address the condition and all have their place without a doubt. So you can address it physiologically, you can address it cognitively as we're talking about, but I do think it will help you navigate any emotion any especially, especially the challenging ones. The whole point of this is more towards the challenging ones, right? If they're happy and joyful, you might not need this tool because there's nothing to sort of navigate but the ones that are uh, that are presenting you obstacles will help you help you uh move through this mm-hmm. I, I think that's a great point there's often this divide um that i see out in again in the self-help world where we have people that are, are just looking at the cognitive strategies and then people that are looking at like the the biohacks so you know if you've got uh anxiety it's uh uh, stop drinking so much coffee, take uh, CBD oil and do, you know, all of the different things that are going to affect the the physiology that is going to give yeah. rise to that sensation. Uh, and, of course, we can't really separate out all of these things. They're all so interconnected. How much of the – how much time and energy do you spend investigating or looking into or even using for yourself more of the – uh, physiologically or also biologically based stuff like uh, the nutrition and breath work and all those sorts of things mm-hmm. and how much of an impact do you feel that that has when you then overlaying that with cognitive strategies yeah i think it, it has a huge impact i mean i'm an ultra runner so training my body and ultimately and then also then putting in the right stuff in my body is huge it's all connected if you're putting the right stuff in your body, you're without a doubt going to affect your mind differently. And I, again, I don't necessarily, I'm sh- there is, I'm sure, science to show this, but I don't have data within myself to show it. Uh, you know, I haven't measured that, but I feel different when, I, when I'm eating right, when I'm exercising, mm. right, I'm in a better space uh, internally, emotionally. So it all, it all connects. And I do spend a lot of time, I mean, I'm no nutritionist, but I know enough to eat a very healthy diet. And I do eat a very healthy diet. I'm also very, very fit. I exercise a lot. And, uh, and, and I, can, I can feel the difference in my, in my mental faculties. And even in, my spir- even in a spiritual way, I can feel the difference if I'm not uh, exercising, if I'm not doing this. So it's all connected, right? Mind, body, spirit. And same thing even with science and spirituality. Not, it's not like one is better than the other. Both have their place. They're not sort of opposing as they're often framed i think they both can work together and when you do make them work together i think it can help uh evolve your awakenings even faster are you more of a 
tackle, like use one particular strategy or, or technique at a time and see how that works or like an all at once sort of approach. Uh, let me let me give you an example, something uh, that I've experienced recently. Um, because of the time difference, as you know, with a lot of these uh, uh, calls and podcasts and everything, yeah. uh, particularly coming into winter when there's a really big time difference, uh, I'm often up uh, early in the morning uh, and it'll be you know afternoon or early evening for my guests uh, a lot of the time. And uh, many of these podcast calls, like I'd, I'd get up in the morning, I'd have um, a coffee and after a while I started to feel like quite anxious to do the calls. Mm. I thought, well, mm. this, is, this isn't right. Like I never normally experience any kind of fear or anxiety around speaking to, to like having guests on and, and doing mm -hmm. these, these sorts of calls. So I decided to investigate uh, and first I, I thought it was a bunch of different things, you know, maybe cortisol levels are too high, maybe I'm not awake enough in the morning, my brain isn't fully into gear, like what's going on. Anyway, I think there are a number of different uh, approaches that I took, but I think the one that made the biggest difference was um, when I found out that I have a particular variant of a gene, I think it's called CYP1A, which means I'm a slow metabolizer of caffeine, which mean, mm. means it really affects me. Mm. Well, one thing I did was I switched to decaf and it almost went away within a couple of days. Huh. So just that one little subtle shift. Yeah, interesting. But that physiological arousal overlaid with, well, maybe I'm anxious speaking to guests. Now all of a sudden I've cre almost created the anxiety and now, of course, my brain is using that as a template to predict the near future. And then when I'm going into the call, I'm now feeling that anxiety. Yeah. I drop the arousal. I use the cognitive strategy. Well, my cognitive strategy was I can't possibly be anxious. This is ridiculous. There must be something going on in my body. But I took a very strategic approach to that one thing at a time, eliminated one thing, tried out one thing until I figured out yeah. you know, what, the, what the thing was and then looked into the science behind it. Are you, uh, are you, uh, do you have that sort of approach or are you, uh, I'm going to just throw 10 different strategies at once and hopefully one of them is going to stick, which is also an approach I've taken in the past as well. Yeah. Like you're one thing at a time or an all at once kind of guy. I think, I guess it depends because I think sometimes the problem is if you do all at once, so you don't know what actually worked, right? You don't know what actually, uh, yeah. what actually made a difference. Uh, so, so you like, so you like to know what, what it is. You like to know what the underlying cause is a lot of the times in, in order to then replicate it and, and be consistent with it, you know, but like yes. now with that said, some things I don't need to, like you mentioned exercise, nutrition, I don't necessarily like everything I put, for example, I might switch from hemp seeds to chia seeds to, uh, uh, flax seeds and put different kinds of seeds in my smoothie. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily get to that nitty gritty level of like all, all of them are good. So whatever I'll put, you know, as one sort of small example, I'll put them all in or mix it all up and, uh, and it's all good. Uh, so I think, I guess it's a combination in terms of how I would approach a challenge is, would it be, you know, sometimes I'll maybe do it all. Like I would, um, I'm trying to think of a specific example. I can't have the top of my head. It's not coming to me, but yeah, I guess it maybe kind of depends on, on the situation because when I, when I look at it in terms of marketing, you always want to test one thing at a time, right? In my business. So you know, what's actually working, mm. but I do, I do understand it's different in this case because you could just throw a bunch of things and if they all work cool, you know, stick with it. Uh, and especially if they're all, 
because if you know enough about the subject, whether it be physic physically or or neurologically, you at least have a sense of the whys. You know, you might not know which one, but you know, you know the 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 basic at, at a sort of high level what what's good and what's not. So these are good things. Let me try a bunch of good things. And if they all work, cool. I'll keep doing all the good things because they're all good. You know, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the reason I, I bring it up is I want to link it back to, for our listeners, that, uh, and actually I was listening, um, no, I was reading a, a paper yesterday. I'm, I'm putting some training together for our um, premium members. And I was looking at into specifically the impact of sunlight on uh, increasing serotonin. Mm. And, and of course, serotonin, our feel-good neurotransmitter, makes us feel good during the day. Now, the impact of sunlight on uh, serotonin is a multi-mediated uh, phenomenon, and meaning like there's multiple explanations or mechanisms by which that uh, occurs. And the one I was looking into was that uh, we have serotonergic, uh, a serotonergic system in our skin. Mm. So the sunlight on our skin is what can create serotonin but there are other ways to do that as well and i was thinking about the the kind of operating system within our brain tends to be biased towards looking for one particular thing mm-hmm. like one one cause to one effect very binary or black and white type approach when oftentimes uh, as we've been talking about we're looking at a very complex system of yeah. systems yeah and the one thing that might tip you over the edge might not be the one thing that's actually making the difference. You could have done 10 other things mm. at the same time. Mm. Mm. So I think even when we're, we're bringing this right back to a one thing at a time approach, it may not even be that one particular thing. It could have been all the things leading up to that that yeah. has this compounding effect that then tipped you over to the edge into, well, now I feel completely different. And I think that's yeah. a, an important idea uh, to get across to people is that um, stop looking for this magic bullet. Yes, I 100% agree. Yeah, stop looking for the magic bullet because, yeah, I always like to say mastery is a campaign. It's definitely not one magic hack. Sometimes I don't like the term hack because it conveys if I do this one little hack, I'll find the easiest way out. So mastery is a campaign. And I do agree that, yeah, it's not one little thing. You got to look for the multiple, like, for example, you know, meditation is invaluable, but that one tool alone is not going to magically solve your life problems and it's going to be great all of a sudden, right? Does that mean you should not do it? No, it's one tool in the arsenal of tools that help improve our lives, that lead to mastery. I mean, in the example you provided, going out into the sun is a great thing. I mean, even for many reasons, right? So go out into the sun and then do something else to, <laughs> yeah. to take. I mean, it's also the part of the problem is we don't have, we, don't, we can't really tell. Like I could take CBD oil, you know, which I do as a recovery. Uh, and I don't really know what it's doing within inside of me, right? You know, like, yeah, like for example, even with my running, I, I started changing my shoes, improving my nutrition, got sponsored by Hammer Nutrition. And suddenly I was able to run a lot more miles injury free. Do I know which one worked? Not exactly. I don't know what specifically this one supplement is doing when I take it whatever kind of works. I don't have, so the part part is also measuring the data, you know, mm. within is, is this, is this the one thing that's really working? We don't have that. And we're all not going to, you know, crazy labs that are measuring every little thing all the time. Right. So you could spend your entire life. Like I could spend my entire exactly. life literally just running experiments on myself, collecting exactly, right? the data, analyzing it. Exactly. And then, <laughs> um, exactly. which would be kind of fun. <laughs> 
I think for a while. <laughs> it would be for a little bit to experiment like that. Yeah, I know some of those. Yeah, we I'm sure we know of people who like do the biohacking, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah and measure yeah. it. And I think that'd be cool for sure uh, uh, for a little while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, guys, Fiavana, uh, actually, any final thoughts before we finish out the uh, the episode? Just, I mean, the one thing I can't stress enough, especially because it's so hard, is to is to go into those spaces that are hard to 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 struggle like don't avoid them. That's not going to solve your problems. You know, in my book, I quote somebody, I can't remember who it was, where he says that neurologically struggle is required. You know, the brain has to go through struggle in order to, in order to rewire itself the right way. And, and I say this too, like I'll give you an example. I, I t- chatted with somebody um, who had gone through the Boston bombing. And so she was struggling with some symptoms of PTSD as a result. And I was talking to her about sort of being with it and being present to it, understanding. And she was like, a response was like, that's really hard. And yeah, I said, it is hard to be, be, to confront the, the, the trauma of that is hard, but you can either confront it, go there or deal with the, deal with the side effects of it all your entire life. You know, to summarize that, like Carl Jung once said that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Mm. So it's hard to go into these spaces, but if you don't, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And on that note, one last point, which I want to touch on, you know, in America here, we talk about the pursuit of happiness, right? That's what it's all about, the pursuit of happiness. And I think that's a deeply flawed concept because when you pursue, when you come from the mindset that we're pursuing happiness, then suffering becomes a barrier in the way of that happiness. Suffering is now the enemy because I'm all about being happy. If you pursue meaning instead, or what I like to call your worthy struggle, then the suffering, which you will experience, whether you like it or not, then it becomes a tool. Then you find meaning in it. So stop looking for happy. Look for meaning. Look for that worthy struggle. And you'll be able to handle, not, you'll not only find more meaning in the joy, but you will find more meaning in the suffering as well. Lovely. Fiavana, where can people go to get the book? Book is on uh, Amazon, uh, Kindle, Audible, paperback. All the profits go to charity. So we're supporting some really beautiful causes with that. And then you can find me at fearvana.com as well. Fearvana.com. Guys, we'll put the uh, the link in the show notes. Actually, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure and great to talk to you again. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review. And of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.